It's Friday, November 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. In a 232 to 196 party line vote, the House has approved rules for the Trump impeachment inquiry. The rules lay out how the House Intelligence Committee, who is currently leading the investigation, will transition to public hearings. They will release a report of their findings and also release transcripts of closed-door testimony. Mike Lillis, congressional reporter at The Hill, joins us for the latest step in the impeachment inquiry. Next, one of the biggest events in horse racing happens this weekend as Santa Anita Racetrack hosts the Breeders' Cup. Santa Anita itself has been under tons of scrutiny for 36 horse deaths since last December. And while there are many factors that can contribute to a horse injury, one of the few factors we can control is the quality of dirt tracks. Lexi Pendel, contributor to Wired, joins us for the super-optimized dirt that helps keep horses safe. Finally, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey has announced that they will no longer run political ads, putting pressure on Facebook, who recently said they would allow political ads to be posted on their platform, even if there were lies in the campaign messaging. Stephen Overly, tech reporter at Politico, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This is a sad day. It's a sad day. Because nobody comes to Congress to impeach a president of the United States. No one. As the inquiry proceeds, we'll decide whether we'll go forward with impeachment. That decision has not been made. Joining us now is Mike Lillis, congressional reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So Democrats took a vote on Thursday and passed a package of ground rules for their impeachment inquiry of the president. The vote was 232 to 196. All Republicans voted to oppose the resolution and two Democrats joined them. Mike, tell us a little bit about what happened surrounding this vote. Extremely partisan vote, as you mentioned. It cut almost strictly across party lines. That was predictable. Nobody thought that Republicans were going to cross the line on this one. There was one independent, Justin Amash. We could mention him. He was a Republican until a couple months ago, until he supported impeachment. And then he was kind of disowned by the party. So he's now an independent. And he did vote with the Democrats for this package. So he was a wild card in all of this. But yes, it was a strict party line vote, let's call it. The two Democrats who voted with the Republicans are in kind of heavy Trump district and they're just looking at their re-election. That was Colin Peterson up in Minnesota, and Trump won his district by more than 30 points three years ago. So he has a very tough race coming up. And then Jeff Van Drew, a freshman from New Jersey, Trump won his district by five points. So there's a lot of politics at play here. The surprising thing, I think, if anything, from this vote was the number of moderates like Jeff Van Drew, who did just the opposite and voted with Pelosi and the Democrats, because there are a lot of people in his type of district, five points, four points, three points for Trump. They're facing very tough re-elections, and yet they did stick their neck out here to support impeachment. And I think the reason is that a lot of them have national security or military backgrounds, and they just have reached a tipping point where they said, we've got to do something here, and we can't allow this precedent to be set. I would have to imagine that a lot of that has to do with a lot of the testimony that we've been hearing coming out from these impeachment panels. Uh, A lot of diplomats, military people also saying that they were very concerned with the phone call that the president had with the Ukrainian president. And that's also part of the problem, too. That's where Republicans were attacking the process on this, saying you're doing all this stuff behind closed doors. You're just kind of leaking out things that make the president seem worse. I'm assuming all of that plays into it. Absolutely, sure. And and not everybody, of course, is on the committees that are hearing these closed-door depositions. So not everybody is in the room and has a first 
hand account of the witness testimony and everything that has happened. But enough of the testimony has leaked, and a lot of these are very you know respected veteran diplomats who have been in service for decades under administrations of both Democratic and Republican presidents. So their nonpartisan bona fides are fairly established, and their voice goes a long way. And for them to testify, and then for their testimony to leak, and these stories to be written about how damning they thought that phone call was, and what a threat to national security. I mean, that's the whole reason we're having this inquiry to begin with. That's the reason Pelosi, who didn't want to do this at all for months and months and months, suddenly changed her mind and said, no, we have to do it. That's the reason that they had the vote today. We have to take it to the public. And so this thing is really churning pretty quickly. It was just five weeks ago that Pelosi announced the process, and now we're moving into the public phase. Having covered Pelosi for many years, she says once a day, at least, she says public sentiment is everything. And she's paraphrasing Abraham Lincoln. So she knows that they can't do this without public support. And so part of the strategy here is just to get these things televised, get it all out in the open, and hopefully it changes people's minds enough that they would put pressure on Trump's Republican defenders over there in the Senate, because, of course, nothing happens unless the Republicans in the Senate actually vote for something down the line. So the rules that they passed talk about how they would transition to public hearings and a couple of other things. What did we learn from the rules that they set forth? So far, the closed-door hearings have been primarily three committees, intelligence, oversight, and foreign affairs. Now they're saying this rule specifies that they'll broaden it out just a little bit and they'll include a couple other committees. Now, having said that, it's still going to be primarily Adam Schiff and the Intelligence Committee covering the Ukraine stuff, but they just want to include some of the other allegations that are out there. I think that's more a political move to get some of these other members involved, some of the chairmen and women who have been working on these issues for a long time and have been kind of left on the sidelines and want a piece of this spotlight, so to speak. So there will be six committees that will be working all public hearings. It's going to do things like right now, the committees can only, each member can only uh, ask questions for five minutes and then you got to move on to the next member. So the rules today will establish, you can broaden that out so that one member can ask a longer series of questions, more like deposition style, more like a courtroom style. It will also allow staff to ask questions, which they feel is important because a lot of these staffers are prosecutors, are seasoned lawyers, whereas some of these lawmakers have no background in law or prosecution or a courtroom. So they think that that's to their advantage. It also will allow for the release of or set up a process for how to release the transcripts from the closed door depositions that we've been having, which is, you know, you've heard the Republicans say, we don't even have access to the transcripts. The public can't see the transcripts. Nobody knows what these witnesses are saying. So this will allow for a process where the transcripts will be released. We still don't know when, and I'm sure there will be redactions, but that's part of this process is figuring out how to do all of that. And then finally, they're going to produce a final report at the end of all this. So this sets the ground rules for how to produce that report. And then, of course, we're still in the investigation stage from closed door to public. We're still investigating. This is still the inquiry, not the articles phase. But when they do move to the articles phase, or if they do, but it will be the Judiciary Committee that has jurisdiction over the articles. And so this rule will also transition from the investigatory committees to Judiciary, which will ultimately write the articles, vote on them, and send them to the floor. Mike Lillis, congressional reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Listen, thanks for having me anytime. Let's <laughs> go.
when we've been sort of thinking about what's been going on at Santa Anita, a lot of people have been looking to the dirt because of the storms this last winter, which are kind of uncharacteristically stormy and rainy. So essentially, people were worried that some of the materials were getting washed away, making it firmer for the horse's legs. Joining us now is Lexi Pendel, contributing writer to Wired. Thanks for joining us, Lexi. Thanks for having me. One of the biggest events in horse racing is going to be happening this weekend uh, on Friday and Saturday. It's the Breeders' Cup. And it's going to be held at Santa Anita Racetrack, which has come under a lot of scrutiny for about 36 horse deaths now since December of last year. They've had a hard time getting a handle on exactly what was happening. Part of the thing with this is that there's so many contributing factors to why a horse might fall and break a leg, all that stuff. And that's what we're going to focus on a little bit here is the super optimized dirt that they use to help keep racehorses safe. Lexi, tell us a little bit about that. When somebody who doesn't know much about horses, or honestly, even someone who does, looks out at a racetrack, it looks kind of just like dirt. In reality, the material that they use for this dirt track is actually comprised of a very specific blend of sand, clay, and silt. When we've been sort of thinking about what's been going on at Santa Anita, a lot of people have been looking to the dirt because of the storms this last winter. Essentially, people were worried that either some of the materials were getting washed away, making it firmer for the horse's legs, or alternatively, that the process by which they essentially rolled the track flat to prevent too much water from getting into it was making the track too firm for the horse's legs. In any case, to get to kind of back to what the actual track is comprised of, there's sort of these three layers, almost like a cake. So there's a base of crushed limestone at the very bottom, and then there's a hard pan of compacted sand in between that. And then on top, about three inches of this sort of soft, sandy cushion, which is that sand, clay, and salt blend. And what goes into this is an incredible amount of work from the track maintenance team. They're out there essentially aerating and fluffing it with harrows, which are tractors with big tines attached to the side of them. They're also out there with watering machines that essentially spray out about 100,000 gallons of water every day onto the track. And there's also engineers that are going out and doing testing with sensors and machinery to make sure that everything, you know, the exact material composition and the exact texture is exactly what they want. There's so much that goes into it, even the grains of sand. You were talking about how they bind together. And when the sand is fresh and kind of rocky still, let's say, it kind of forms together and it holds itself. But as time goes and horses are trampling over it, the sand gets softer and rounder. And then it kind of becomes looser. And that even that could be a detriment to the horses when they're running down the track. And we all know, you know, horses, big, giant, beautiful animals, but they're racing on toothpick legs, basically holding up that huge frame. Horses are really incredible once you get to learn more about the biomechanics of exactly how they work. The bones in their legs are some as small as the size of a walnut, some of which taper down to the thinness of a Q-tip. And all of this holds up a thousand pound animal. And because there is such strain on their bodies as athletes, the surface they run on is of the utmost importance. And we have to put this into perspective this time around, at least for Santa Anita. There's a lot more media scrutiny, a lot of activists that might have been concerned for the horses. The numbers of horse deaths there are not really out of the ordinary. In 2018, there was 37 horse deaths. We're about 36 right now. This is since last December. And in the years prior, there was 54 and 57 deaths. So 
that's kind of another one of the things to put in perspective. You know, it's just received a lot more scrutiny this time around. And just continuing on this whole thing about the science and how they're analyzing the dirt with sensors. There's a guy named Mick Peterson who does a lot of the testing for Santa Anita and they've tested it multiple times. And a lot of times everything's come back fairly normal. And the thing to keep in mind, too, about the fatality rates, though Santa Anita is technically in line with years past, I think a lot of people in the horse world agree that it doesn't make too much of a difference, that things still need to become safer for the horses. And, you know, Mick Peterson is really at the forefront of that kind of work. He is a guy who's trained as a mechanical engineer. He had pretty much no horse experience, came into the racing world while he was an assistant professor at Colorado State University. And... He was really alarmed that there were no standards for how track surfaces should be maintained. And Mick Peterson came in and he started developing some really amazing machinery that could do that testing. He developed this massive machine that essentially replicates the impact of a horse's front leg on the surface of the track. When you watch it, it slams down to the ground and there's all these embedded sensors in it that will tell you all this information about what the impact is on the horse. He also started using some machinery that was used in other fields. He started using ground penetrating radar, which had been historically used by archaeologists, and even the military. And he started using that to essentially beam into the ground and see exactly how thick and even each of those layers of the track was to essentially determine if things were even, if things were the right depth. And this is work that had never been done before, which is pretty remarkable. Horse people in general are somewhat uh, traditionalists, and he's one of the people really moving things forward. And the innovations that he's working on sort of now, looking ahead are also pretty amazing too. Lexi Pendel, contributing writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Here, I think what you have Jack Dorsey saying is, how can we try to combat election interference while also allowing paid ads that contain misinformation or contain falsehoods? And so Twitter is just going to sort of tap out on political ads. Joining us now is Stephen Overly, tech reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Earlier this week, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey announced that Twitter will no longer be running political ads And this also kind of threw a little bit of pressure on Facebook, who earlier had said that they're going to allow political ads, even if candidates or political groups are lying in those ads. Stephen, tell us a little bit about this decision. So over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a lot of intense scrutiny on Facebook after the company made this decision that it was not going to vet political ads for accuracy. If a politician wanted to run an ad on Facebook, even if it included lies or misleading information, that was going to be permissible. And the company has gotten a lot of blowback for that. What really sort of threw gasoline on the fire now is Wednesday, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey said that the company is not going to allow political advertising at all, that they don't think this is a question of free speech. This is a question of people buying access to speech and that they did not want to essentially have any part in political ads that had misleading or deceptive information. Jack Dorsey, for his part in a series of Twitter posts, said, we're working hard to stop people from gaming our systems to spread misleading info, but 
if somebody wants to target and force people to see their ad by paying for it, you know, well, that they can do whatever they want. He's got a point there, but for his part, Mark Zuckerberg has his own points also. These companies have all been battling misinformation since coming out of the 2016 election when we learned that Russians and sort of others were deliberately using social media to spread false information, often to advantage President Trump in the last presidential race. And so as we look forward to 2020, all of these companies are going to be facing questions about what they're doing to combat misinformation and to combat foreign election interference. And sort of here, I think what you have Jack Dorsey saying is, how could we try to combat election interference while also allowing paid ads that contain misinformation or contain falsehoods? I think for his point was that those two things don't line up. And so Twitter is just going to sort of tap out on political ads rather than vet them for accuracy or sort of risk spreading misinformation. And Facebook has taken the opposite view. Zuckerberg said in a speech at Georgetown two weeks ago that the company is committed to free expression and that that's one of the reasons that it's sort of allowing misleading ads on its site. It would rather have people see them and sort of make their own decisions than be the one to say what can and cannot be advertised on its website. On the face of it, it seems like this is a much easier decision for Twitter. Uh, According to some reports, spending on political advertisements could reach an overall amount of about $6 billion for the 2020 election. A lot of that money is going to be directed towards Facebook and Google. And I think for their part, Twitter said that they got about $3 million from the 2016 election just from political ads. So on the face of it, it seems like it's a much easier decision for them. Twitter received $3 million in the 2018 midterm election cycle. And for Twitter, political advertising is a much lower number. They make a lot less money than both Google and Facebook. And so one could say, from a business standpoint, it's easier for them to make that call. But at the end of the day, if you look at the amount of money that Google and Facebook make on political advertising, it is a very, very small amount of their overall revenue. So for none of these companies, are they really getting rich off of political ads? And that's why I think this debate has kind of become a question of free expression and free speech, because for these companies, they could, in essence, get rid of political ads and not suffer terribly from a business perspective. But I think the question they're grappling with is, what does that mean for free speech and democracy if Suddenly, politicians and political groups can advertise on these platforms that are used by millions of voters across the country. And what has been the reaction to this? A lot of times now, it just seems like things come down on party lines. It seems like Democrats were applauding this decision and Republicans and the president's campaign himself said that this is another effort to silence conservative voices. We definitely saw a partisan reaction to this. You've seen a lot of Democrats who have praised the decision and basically said if social media companies can't fact check their advertisements or if they can't commit to only allowing accurate political ads, then they should not be in this business at all. Conversely, though, there have been a number of Republicans who've criticized this decision, particularly Brad Parscale, who's the campaign manager for President Trump's reelection, came down rather hard on Twitter for this decision and did say it amounts to sort of the silencing of conservatives, which Twitter is banning all political ads, to be clear. It does not matter if it's a Democrat or Republican. All political ads will no longer be allowed on the site. But the Trump campaign has sort of painted this as another effort to suppress conservatives on social media sites. Stephen Overly, tech reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.